Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, The Great Courses Plus, Eero, and our contributors at Patreon. In 2015, documentarian Seth Breedlove took his lifelong love of filmmaking and embarked on an experiment. He set out to make a short YouTube video about a cryptid known as the Minerva Monster. It turned out to be a rabbit hole that went far deeper than he had imagined, and before he knew it, there were lines around the block at the premiere of the first real film made by his production company, Small Town Monsters. That was over three years ago, and since then, Seth has written, directed, and produced, along with the support of his incredible team, seven films in total. The Minerva Monster, Beast of Whitehall, Boggy Creek Monster, The Mothman of Point Pleasant, Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, The Flatwoods Monster, and most recently, The Bray Road Beast, which includes collaboration with former Astonishing Legends guest, prolific cryptid author, Linda Godfrey. Tonight, we sit down with him and talk about the experience of making these films, why he did it, what he's learned, and where he will go from here. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. At that time, there was an adult crowd that took the whole satanic religion seriously. Anything from teachers to possible law enforcement people being involved, people would show up from around the world. John Fredrickson, paraphrased from Seth Breedlove's new film, The Bray Road Beast. Join us tonight as we sit down with paranormal and cryptid documentary auteur, Seth Breedlove. And we're back. Yes, we are, with a creepy show. Well, it's kind of creepy. It's a creepy interview. Well, <laughs> Seth, I'm not saying Seth well, is creepy. Wait, you're saying then we're creepy. I'm backtracking. Okay. Anyway, no, you know what? Back this year earlier, we went to the Kent Paranormal Weekend. We had a blast. Thanks to those guys again. I do want yeah. to give them a shout out at the Kent stage there in Kent, Ohio. It was really cool. But one of the cool things about it was that we met a lot of people that we'd never had a chance to meet before. Yeah. The schedule was really hectic. We flew into Cleveland and landed at the, hello, Cleveland. That's my favorite <laughs> mm-hmm. disco wizard thing. Yeah. But we flew into Cleveland. We raced over to the rental car. Then we raced down to Kent. We were trying to get there by eight o'clock. I believe yeah. it was eight. Right. And it kind of stinks when you're on that schedule because we were driving through so much cool countryside yeah, and it was cemeteries. Yeah. And all we wanted to do was stop. But we we're like, no, we got to get there because at eight o'clock, it was a screening of Seth Breedlove's movie, The Mothman of Point Pleasant. And, and we, like, yeah, we, of course, have a personal connection to that, and we had to see it. Never heard of it. But yeah, so <laughs> yeah. we slid into town there. We go into that creepy old stage, which they would be happy to hear me describe it that way. I look at it. And, <laughs> and we got in there and sat down. We were about five minutes late. The movie had already started, but there was nothing better than sliding into those old seats and just yeah. leaning back. And we, we got a beer in. first, I think. Yeah, yeah, we got a beer. Yeah. That may have added yeah, to they, they, Maybe they, that's the only reason we were late. <laughs> Because right. they offer beers out there, which is, there's nothing better than a theater with beer right outside. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it was awesome. So we sat down and watched that movie, and it really was a blast. And then we got to meet Seth, yeah. the director. Of yeah. course, he was there because he was presenting the movie. And That's he, right. He talked about it a little bit, and we mm-hmm. got to meet him afterwards, and, and subsequently talked to him a whole bunch over the course of the weekend. Yeah, super friendly guy. We were just standing in the lobby, and of course, Shrinking Flower, I just, I, you know, don't expect anybody to come up and talk to me. And he was he was really friendly and cool, and he just, we just chatted about the podcast and about the movie, of course. Well, yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's like, it turned out that we were huge fans of him. He was a fan of us. 
So we started the Paranormal Mutual Admiration Society. <laughs> was, no, we didn't. We're not. You haven't paid your dues. By I, the way. We don't have a T-shirt yet, so it's not real. <laughs> but the, but the, the idea was that we immediately all got along, and we said, "Dude, we got to have you on the show." And he's like, "Yeah, I'd love to come on the show." You know, it's one of those things where it's like, well, we'll try and get that going at some point, but we knew we had to do it sooner than later. So we're glad we did. And on that note, let's go to the interview. We're really thrilled to have Seth Breedlove on with us today, who is somebody that we actually met in Kent, Ohio at the Kent Paranormal Conference this this past year. This year, I should say. Yes, exactly. Time flies. In March. Yeah. And it was a thrill to meet you, Seth. And we are so glad that you're able to come on the show. Say hello to our audience. Maybe tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. First of all, I have to say this. uh, This is a huge thrill for me because... I'm actually a huge fan of the show, and uh, I, I think I told you guys when we were at Kent that the Mothman episodes were actually commonly being played by me and my crew while we were making our Mothman a Point Pleasant <laughs> episode. If only, if only, like to help keep us kind of like in that headspace of what we were working on at the time. So big fan. And this is a huge, huge honor for me. But yeah, I'm a film director, filmmaker, and uh, I do a series of films under the Small Town Monsters banner. And they are basically documentaries that sort of uh, retell famous or infamous uh, legends revolving around rural monsters and how they impact the communities and towns where they take place. At least that's kind of how it started out. I think it's morphed <laughs> into something a little different from that, but that's how it originally was born. Interesting. Well, what do you think it's morphed into? Because I, I like the uh, starting off. That's one of the things that a lot of people who tell these stories don't get into is like, how does that affect the community that it takes place in or where it was born, the legend? And it identifies the towns so much, like all these towns, you know, but nobody really gets into that. So how do you think that that's morphed into something else? I grew up in a small town, so I was always fascinated with that aspect of these stories. So for me, there was always a part of it that was the fact that I kind of wanted to know how these monster legends impacted communities. So when we made Minerva Monster, if you watch Minerva Monster, which was our first movie, it's very different from everything that comes after it. I guess to an extent you can see the blueprint is being put in place, but it's very rough and uh, things have have just changed really dramatically from that movie. But I mean, you know, like the idea was to sort of spend much more time on like the history of the town and then also on this sort of impact, the cultural impact on the community. Um, And I think over, you know, over the last however many movies, we put out six movies that we've put out after that. It's just sort of changed into something a bit different. And I do think we spend slightly less time on some of those things that the community history and and things like that that were in very prominent early on in in Minerva Monster. But also, I mean, like part of that too is that as we go and you start making more of these movies, you kind of get a feel for what your audience is willing to sort of take in and what your audience actually kind of wants. And part of what we're doing is to continue to please the audience we've got and grow the audience that we have. So that's a big part of where we are today is is the audience that we built. So we we do know that early on when we made Minerva Monster, the most common complaint I heard was that we spent 15 minutes on sort of ancillary history for a town that no one's ever <laughs> going to visit that they really didn't care about. 
I'm a little different from our audience in some ways. Like for me, that kind of stuff is really fascinating and mm-hmm. I'm interested in that local history and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I understand the point. It had nothing to do necessarily with the story that's to come. So for us, it's about setting up this. We're all in the tent. same choir. Oh my gosh. We're in the yeah. same choir here. That's our yeah. biggest okay. complaint is like, get to the story. Tell us what is this thing? That's but I, I love know. that history yeah. too. It was great getting that in all of your movies, which we watched them all in the past couple of days. So yeah. Yeah. It's like you want to set up the place and really make it a living sort of environment for the story that's to come. But you're also aware that there's these certain people that want you to just get right to the monster story. Oh, yeah. And I get it. And uh, so we've tried to figure out a way to more naturally sort of integrate that community history and the community setting into the monster story. You can really see the difference if you watch like Minerva Monster and then Beast of Whitehall immediately afterward because one movie spent 15 minutes setting up just the setting and then the next movie spends like maybe five tops like three to five minutes and it's all sort of tied much more to the Bigfoot story than it is to just random facts about the town so sure we've seen great change because we binged your entire over six films, I think, actually seven. With yeah, the, well, we yeah. skipped Mothman because we saw it in Kent, and right, obviously right. we're kind of familiar with that one. But yeah, so we watched the other five, plus you very graciously giving us access to the screener for your newest film, which yeah. isn't even released yet, The Bray Road right. Beast. Yeah, no, we had a lot of fun watching The Evolution because, again, we, we watched them in a short period of time, just uh, seeing how they've developed and evolved over the course of each production and how it's kind of changed. And we really enjoyed the first one to begin with, but it's achieved a lot of production value over the years. And uh, yeah, we really applaud you for that. But just my comment on that to begin with is that, yeah, we get the exact same complaint. It's like, just tell us what this monster is. I don't need to know about the town or the how it affects the people and this and that. But what you realize, I don't know if you do as well, what we've realized when you go to study these things is that the monster itself, these sightings are usually very brief. It's not like this thing hangs out and rents a condo and gets to know the town. These are, sightings are very brief. They're very scary. There are some momentary descriptions. But the story of the monster itself really is 10%, and the 90% is how it affects the people that see it. It's what it does to the people because that's where we can go back and actually interview people and talk to them and see how it has affected their lives and that's really most of the story. It's almost a little bit like a Stephen King story where it's, you know, the real horror is how people treat each other uh, around something really scary and uh, that's happening. And we're the real monsters. That's what draws me to the stories that we've chosen to tell in these films to begin with is the the human element rather than than the so-called monster that's at the heart of these stories. For me, it's always about the people. And you can, that goes all the way back to Minerva Monster. I mean, Minerva Monster, when Scott told me that he was watching back through the films, I mean, my my initial reaction was, God, I hope he didn't watch Minerva. Because for me, it's very, I just watched that movie start to finish recently um, with one of the other guys that was on the crew. And we were literally laughing, like just laughing our way through it. So, you know. Well, and, you and, sold and, it to us in Kent. So maybe yeah. you better take it out of your anthology there. Uh, at some point, <laughs> at some point I might have to. Um, I understand its place. And uh, we just received like an email today from from someone that bought it off the web store who said it was his favorite out of like all the movies we'd made, oh. which is shocking for me. But people do respond to it 
still really well. And I think if nothing else, the blueprint is there. Like you can see in that movie that the biggest thing we had going for us with that film is the human story. I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that you've got this small family that are dealing with this monster and, you know, like the way it impacted their lives and the way it impacted Howie and the mom and and the sister and all that kind of stuff. It, that's our production value on that movie because we had no money. So the humans, (laughs) the the human (laughs) story is what was helping us, uh, you know, do something that was unique. Well, monsters are expensive. What you'll learn is that any kind of um, recreations that you have to shoot, anything you have to do with graphics or animation and, and even music and, you know, all that stuff costs production money. And interviews, I mean, yeah, that there's a lot of costs there, but that's the heart of it. Like I said, it's like, oh, do you have actual 4K footage of Mothman? Well, no, we don't, but we got people who described it. And you have a few shots here and there, which could be considered evidence. And that's always really compelling, but... But really, yeah, what you have to work with are just the people who saw it. Yeah, I mean, and for us, we've always steered clear of that kind of stuff, like the evidentiary, like we're, we're going to try to prove to you that Mothman exists. That kind of stuff has never played a part in in what we do. And really, I think it's kind of irrelevant. And we might have talked about this at Ken, actually. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're we're just telling a story and letting the audience sort of sort through the puzzle for themselves and make up their own mind about what's going on. I mean, we're not interested in trying to prove to people that the Mothman exists or the Bigfoot exists. We're just interested in sort of telling the, letting the witnesses tell their story and um, making things, you know, come across in a clear way and, you know, having fun with it and making it entertaining is really important. And um, I don't know. I mean, even that has somewhat, evolved from Minerva Monster. I remember on Minerva Monster being very heady about the fact that we didn't have any recreations in the movie. Mm-hmm. And and I think we actually even used that as kind of like a selling point, like no no recreations, no nonsense, <laughs> yeah. like kind of thing, you know? And over time, as we've moved on, like now, obviously, you saw Bray Road, which is, I wouldn't say it's steeped in in recreations, but there's four or five different recreations that we shot. Plus we have the animated sequences and things like that. So we've, we've sort of started trying to embrace that kind of thing and doing it in a way that doesn't necessarily intrude into the film. In Bray Road, the recreations are there because we didn't have the witnesses there. And that's the first time we've been in that situation where we didn't really have the witnesses to tell their story. So we did it through visuals and through Linda Godfrey and uh, John Fredrickson sort of recounting what the witnesses had seen. So, I mean, obviously, whenever we can, I'd prefer to have the witnesses in the film. But regardless, you know, we're trying to do things in a stylized, fun way. And a big part of this too is Bray Road was our seventh movie in in three years. And um, part of it is just trying to keep it fun and exciting for ourselves as a crew, as, as filmmakers, you know, to, to sort of challenge ourselves and each movie is supposed to have its own specific tone and style that sets it apart from the ones that came before. Thus far, I don't think we've made a movie that felt exactly like the movie that came before it. Mm-hmm. Um, ho- hopefully there's things about it that sort of tie them all together. Obviously, structurally, they're all fairly similar, aside from maybe Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. But um, kind of incorporating different styles and tones with each film is part of that is just to keep things exciting and fun for us. When did you decide that you wanted to be a filmmaker and of this specific kind of film? I mean, were you, 
did you have a previous job or career that you found unsatisfying? <laughs> or did you really, have you just been at this since you were a young whippersnapper? Are you just, this is what I want to do. Like, how did that happen? When I was a kid, what I wanted to be was a filmmaker. So my my mom got me hooked on like Ray Harryhausen movies and oh, great. Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock when I was a kid. And that's like what I loved was, you know, these kind of monster movies and, and weird sort of darker stuff. And that's my mom's fault. So I like to call her out. <laughs> whatever yeah. possible but that's um, awesome though yeah so she was the one that kind of got me into it and that was what i wanted to do i made short films with friends and all that kind of stuff all the way up until shortly after i graduated high school and then i just thought to myself this is not a realistic sort of career path and at that point you know something to notice is that that's probably around 2003 that i made my last short film with my friends and in 2003 digital <laughs> was not what it is today and yeah. didn't have avenues to put this stuff out on where people could see them. If I had made a short film in 2003, we literally would invite a bunch of buddies over to the house and that's how we had an audience, you know, was to show <laughs> it to, to our friends. You spend weeks making a movie and then you show it to like 10 people. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so things have evolved and changed dramatically. But after that, I just thought, I thought it was not a realistic career path. So I, I kind of walked away from it and did normal stuff. I drove a truck for FedEx and did, I tiled floors and I repossessed. See, I knew there was some past careers hiding in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) and and at some point in there, I started freelancing for local newspapers. I've always been a writer and I I liked writing. So I became a freelance reporter for some local newspapers. And it was around that time that I started working a medical billing job, which would have been probably like 2009. And the only thing I did at my medical billing job was sit and listen to podcasts. And some of the podcasts I was listening, I was listening to were like Jim Harold stuff and, and oh, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, like I was moderately into the paranormal, but not not where anywhere near where I'm at today. So I was listening to that kind of stuff. It got me even more hooked on that. And as I was listening to it, I started to think, you know, I could do something with this myself. And my idea was to sort of put together this book that would be a guide to America's small town monsters. And I pitched it to like 10 different publishers. They all rejected it. And um, the following summer, I met a couple guys who had some camera equipment. And I said, you know, we should do one of the cases, cover one of the cases that I had in my book proposal because I had already done all this research into the book and everything and um, just kind of try to make a documentary. And so we went out and we made the Minerva Monster movie with basically like 500 bucks and some camera equipment that we had on hand. And that's how that project came to be. It wasn't until the movie premiered in Minerva, Ohio in June of 2015 we started filming in september of 2014 and and the movie premiered in june of 2015 when it premiered there were 1200 people that crammed into minerva to see it in a theater that only seated 130 people we sold out four screenings wow um and we could not seat everyone i mean it, it there were 130 or 170 seats and there's 1200 people. So it looked like star Wars. Like when you saw, <laughs> when you saw yeah. the line of people going down the street past the theater, it was insane. And there's some video and stuff online you can still find of it. And I've never experienced that kind of thing before, but it wasn't until that day that I actually put two and two together that we had made a movie. Yeah. It never clicked for me for some reason that this was the same thing I'd always kind of wanted to unrealistically <laughs> yeah. do for a living. So 
So once the movie hit, it was successful enough that it propelled me to want to do the Beast of Whitehall. And, you know, we didn't have much money. In fact, I was just talking about this with my wife tonight. I'm pretty sure we spent less on Beast of Whitehall than we did on Minerva Monster, which is saying something. Yeah. But um, that's the extremely wordy answer, I guess. Is, is <laughs> This was something I'd always wanted to do. I just kind of bumbled my way into it. And now we're just kind of figuring it out as we go. You seem to have a spring in your step since last week. What's going on with you, man? Well, it's back to school time, my man. And in some ways, it really is the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> uh, although yes. my son might not think so. Actually, he gripes, but he really does like going back to his uh, day job. <laughs> well, that is funny because a lot of older kids are also leaving their summer jobs and heading back to school, and some businesses or projects now have to find workers to replace them, especially if the business has got busier. You know, I'm thinking we could use a good producer who wants to leave NPR. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, getting busier at your business is a good problem to have, and ZipRecruiter is a perfect solution. It's simple, it's fast, it's smart, and it's the place for growing businesses to easily connect with qualified candidates. Well, how it works is ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. Then, as applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Yeah, that stat always blows me away. But with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. And right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address— ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash L-E-G-E-N-D-S. And one more time, if you're a parent and back to school bliss, ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Sandra, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. For our listeners that don't know what your uh, back catalog is, let's go through the titles of your seven projects. Yeah, Can we you share will, them with everybody? Yeah, we'll, one, I guess uh, we've mentioned Minerva, yeah, Minerva so much. Let's mm-hmm. let people know what that is. Minerva Monster is the first movie, and that was a 55-minute documentary about a Bigfoot case that occurred in Minerva, Ohio, back in 1978 that involved this one family, the Caton family, who kept sort of encountering this Bigfoot-like creature on the hill behind their house. It would throw rocks at their house and sort of interact with them. And uh, they called the police one night in August of 1978, and the police came out, and it kind of spiraled into this very well-documented sort of national media frenzy that was really fascinating to me especially because I grew up about 20 minutes from Minerva. But that was our first movie. It kind of documented that story. Um, The next movie we made was The Beast of Whitehall, which is about a series of sightings that took place in Whitehall, New York, which is a tiny town at the base of the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York back in 1976 that involved multiple members of law enforcement. Our third movie is Boggy Creek Monster, which we made with Lyle Blackburn that sort of, there's an old 1970s horror movie called The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is about a rash of Bigfoot sightings that were taking place around a town called Falk, Arkansas 
honestly starting in the 1800s and then just going up to today. And we just tracked all the sightings that sort of led up to the movie and then the ones that came after the legend of boggy Creek. So that was the third movie. Fourth movie was the Mothman and point pleasant. It's by far our most popular movie. And it's yeah, probably really. the reason we're still alive today is because of that, <laughs> that movie. Cause it did so well. It was the number eight movie on Amazon for about three weeks straight. Wow, as in it was, the, as in it was like yeah. the number eight best-selling streaming rental. All of our movies have done really well on Amazon, but that was on another level. It was ahead of Rogue One um, (laughs) for a little while there, so it was was pretty crazy. We wanted to do a a chronological look at the Mothman case that would take you through all the sort of major sightings um, from beginning to end because I had never seen that done in a film very clearly. So that, that was what we did with the Mothman of Point Pleasant. Following that was Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, which tracks the decades, I guess, centuries possibly of bizarre sightings of uh, strange creatures along a 72-mile mountain range in northwestern Pennsylvania called the Chestnut Ridge. And then we followed that up with the Flatwoods Monster, A Legacy of Fear, which came out in April of this year, which revolves around a sighting that took place in 1952 of some sort of hovering mechanical very strange being on a hill outside of the tiny village of Flatwoods, West Virginia. Shortly after that, I produced a miniseries called On the Trail of Champ. Not directed by me, it was directed by a buddy of mine named Alexander Petikov, but it came out under the Small Town Monsters umbrella. So we put that out in June, and then that will be followed up with the Bray Road Beast, which comes out on October 5th. October 5th. Okay, so that's a pretty good summary. For our listeners, we've seen nearly all of those. I actually haven't seen the Champ one but yeah, uh, or miniseries, right. but we really, really enjoyed them. And I think our listeners are all right up your at. What's Where's the best place for our listeners to watch these, to get access to them? I'd prefer people to go buy them on DVD, but right From, now they're Like all your website? The, yeah, yeah, uh, okay. shop.smalltownmonsters.com. But if you don't feel like shelling out the money for a DVD, which is totally understandable, there a lot of them actually are free right now through Amazon Prime. So if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can go stream them on Amazon Prime, or you can purchase or rent them on Amazon. A bunch of them are available on some of the other major streaming platforms, so like iTunes and Google Play, Vudu, some of those platforms like that. Okay, cool. I'd just like to briefly talk a little bit about some of the facts that stood out to us as, you know, Astonishing Legends, the kind of stuff that we always like to point out if we had covered some of these topics, the Mothman being the yeah. only one that we've commonly covered. And then we have a, a lot of things that we'd like to talk about with regard to the Bray Road Beast, which we really enjoyed. And obviously we've had Linda Godfrey on our show, so there's a lot of a lot of things to talk about there. Going in, know that we have the same mission statement as Seth. And we've said this before on the show. That's exactly the aim that he has with his movies that we have with our podcast, which is to present the characters, the facts, the story behind it as best we know, include as much as we can within a, you know, not unreasonable time frame and let the listener decide as he lets the viewer decide. Yes. And I'll, I'll just say, these are ones, if you like this kind of stuff, you like cryptids, UFOs, all that kind of strange stuff, you're going to want to own the DVDs. For me, anyway, I like to have it, I like to go back at any time 
because there's a lot of facts in there. There's a lot of good uh, interviews and you're just going to want to see it again. So that'd be my preference. Go buy the DVDs. Which also include behind the scenes footage of us (laughs) making fools of ourselves. Yeah, we did see your ATM card get shredded. Yeah, that was was, a fateful fateful trip. Yeah. That was absolutely, you know, and that that was here in Ohio. That was in my town where I live, where uh. that was happening. <laughs> Let's do this. I would like to talk to you about one of the things that I thought that stood out to me about Minerva, and it's funny that you look down on it now because it was your first project. And believe you me, we're not going back and listening to, I would say, <laughs> our first 15 episodes. Oh, um, yeah. I can't believe how fast we talked or how much we interrupted each other, which supposedly we've gotten better at. But um, the things that stood out to me about Minerva, which I thought were interesting, were the rock mm. throwing, which I've heard, obviously Bigfoot people have heard about that. That's part of the Bigfoot uh, thing. I, where, I've experienced it, actually. You've experienced that? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah where? Very recently. I was in the, the Wachita Mountains in southeastern Oklahoma back in June, and something threw rocks at a metal outbuilding in a camp I was staying in and then started Gibbon laughing at us. Oh, my goodness. Really? Like like yeah. monkey laughing. We came up with the Gibbon thing after <laughs> the fact. We, you know, like we couldn't figure out what it sounded like because it wasn't like anything else that we had heard in the in the woods that week. And when we got back, the guy that had been in the tent with me when it happened, who can actually do a kind of a pitch perfect imitation of it. He, he came up with the Gibbon comparison. He was like listening to other animals online. He sent it to me and I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty close to what we heard. Are there any known primates in the area where you were? Any known primates? No, this is the Wachita Mountains, which is an extremely isolated, uninhabited section of Oklahoma. It's, it's uh-huh. The park is actually kind of shared between Arkansas and Oklahoma, it's right on the border. Half the park is in one state, half the park's in the other. I was I was actually in there with a group called the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. Uh-huh. Um, oh yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I'm I'm actually a member. It's it's like the only <laughs> Bigfoot group. And it's funny because I, I was in there as like the renowned skeptic, like the most skeptical <laughs> person in the group. Yeah. And this one thing, like the rock throwing and the and the whoop is the only thing I've ever, ever experienced out in the woods that would kind of lead me to believe that the Bigfoot might exist. You don't think they were yanking your chain while you were out there? Oh, no, no. It was a really small group, and the four people that we were in there with are all people I know outside of Bigfoot. So they're they're all people I'm familiar with and well acquainted with. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Kathy Strange. She wrote the book mm. Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters. She works for the Forest Service. She was in there with us yes. and her husband. They're super cool people. They were in there. And then Brian Brown, who used to do the old uh, podcast called The Bigfoot Show, was in uh-huh. there. Mm-hmm. And a guy named Daryl Collier, who's like this extremely legitimate, somewhat terrifying military type who <laughs> could kick my rear end in, in two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's what's interesting to me, because one of the things that you had said that the Caton said, Mm -hmm. uh, your witnesses for Minerva, was that they marked one of the rocks and the marked rock came back. They put an X on it or whatever, which I thought was amazing. And then the other thing that was really fascinating was the fact that was it the mom that taunted whatever it was and then then got hit right between the eyes? That was a neighbor. And um, that was their next door neighbor. And of all the stories in that film that I felt seemed over the top, yeah. like, like slightly unbelievable, <laughs> yeah. was yeah. this story about this woman that Howie Caton told where he said that, you know, one night they were outside their house or whatever, and this lady screamed up into the woods, you know, like, if you're really up there, why don't you just bean me right between the eyes with a rock? 
And supposedly, immediately, this rock came flying off the hill and clocked her right in the head, (laughs) broke her glasses. And I remember when when we shot it, like, it's one of those moments where I'm, like, on the verge of rolling my eyes, but I didn't do it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So the next year, or maybe two years later, it would have been two years later, we were at Minerva Monster Day, which is an event that we host in Minerva occasionally, where we kind of have this big free sort of outdoor or I guess indoor too, because we show movies, film festival. And Lauren Coleman was there and a lady approached his table. Two ladies approached his table. One was younger and the other was older. And the younger lady introduced herself and said that her mother, who was standing next to her, was the lady that got beamed between the eyes with the rock. (laughs) And that lady... 100% 100% backed up the story, introduced yourself to me, retold the story to me and and I remember coming away from that like I had no like I had no inkling that that story wasn't just how he misremembering something he'd heard yeah. as a kid. It just seems so unbelievable to me. For some reason that's the thing you pick out, you know, like in the story about the unknown primate living behind someone's house, you pick out a story about a rock getting thrown at a lady as being like the unbelievable part of it but i mean well, it was he, completely backed up for me <laughs> well and that's the question i yeah. had like because i wondered in terms of communication between whatever that thing was and her mm-hmm. we're either going to have to accept that it understands english or that she was gesticulating in a way that made it clear what she wanted to happen and it just understood body language mm-hmm. like she pointed to her you know hit me right here and pointed to her forehead yeah. and then she or, got beamed yeah. or like, that's just a whole nother level of operation if Bigfoot can understand English. <laughs> well, it's a little... <laughs> yeah, you're pulling at the logic of the hat in the can. Yeah. That's the phrase we use where it's like you're questioning something that's completely off the scale of questionability. Like, it's logic that we don't even have access to. It's like, does Bigfoot understand English? Well, if you watch the, the $6 million man episode, he had some kind of computer device, Steve Austin, that he could communicate with Bigfoot. Yeah, through, I forgot about Through brainwaves. Yeah, I just happened to see that recently. Uh, my point is, it's like, it's hard to kind of suss out. Yeah, I see where Scott's going. He's being very analytical. Like, did this thing hang around humans for, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years? And it could, uh, it certainly learned the local language. It's outside the window with a notebook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's I, practicing I, I, yeah. its English. Well, there's another, there's another phrase, I think, in comedy where you're questioning. The, the logic log- police. The logic police is yeah. something really ridiculous. Yeah, and that's yeah. where this falls. It's like. Well, yeah, maybe she was gesticulating, but again, then you're you're thinking about an animal that probably, if it does exist, and oh, I wanted to ha- a side comment here. What I like about the Wood Ape Conservancy is that they take a very logical and rational approach that it is, it's just a, simply a creature that we've not yet cataloged. That's a real thing, like any ape in another continent would be, except that it's just North American ape that's just living out in the woods, right? I, b- I believe that is kind of their tack, where... Yeah, it- It's a natural thing. Yeah, they're sort of operating under the MO that this thing is an undiscovered primate that's somehow managed to remain undetected within, you know, a heavily populated country for the last few centuries. And it sounds absurd to you if you're coming into this from the outside, you know, not understanding maybe that Bigfoot isn't just one creature that's being seen around. You know, I mean, the, the common assumption from people that don't know much about these subjects is that Bigfoot's one thing that's been seen for centuries and it's like the Jersey Devil or something where it's just this one creature character. There's been sightings in that area that go back centuries and behavior 
patterns that seem to line up that have been recounted by people all over the world or all over the country. So there's this ape thing is once you really start looking at what the predominant number of reports of Bigfoot tend to be, it does seem to be some sort of unknown primate. And again, I tend to be more on the skeptical side. I would say when I went into the Wachita's back in June, I was at maybe like 30% on the, these things exist factually, you know, like as a, just being mm-hmm. completely open with you guys, I, I was probably at about 30% and I came out of there at like 75, 80, because mm. whatever was in the woods, we're, we're nine miles back in the woods yeah. in the Wachita mountains. It, it took two and a half hours of driving to get nine miles to where we were. We're down in a valley. The only way down is this road that you have to take. You have to be in a four wheel drive pickup that's jacked because there's no way you're getting down this thing otherwise. And if you're back there hoaxing these people, you are risking getting shot because they're all armed. And you're also risking getting killed by a mountain lion, a a rattlesnake, a copperhead, bears, any number of other things that are hiding out in the woods down there. So I don't believe for a minute I was being hoaxed. Right. So my point being is that with all these stories, there does seem to be a sense of intelligence with these things. And the point I was trying to make earlier was that thinking it could bean somebody square, you know, in the (laughs) eyes there, break the glasses right in half. It's like you're talking about something that is very intelligent, maybe even more so than the common ape that's different and maybe more closer to humans. And so that skill level or that kind of understanding, if I'm going to go down that road of belief, then I will give it more credit to be able to do something like that. Some of these behavioral traits are trackable across all these stories. That's one of the really fascinating aspects about Bigfoot that a lot of these other paranormal subjects might not have are the sort of like real world trackable data points, you know, like the things that people recount experiencing when it comes to seeing one of these creatures that other people are recounting. And and the rock throwing thing especially is really fascinating because that's something that's been recounted for centuries. I mean, you could also go all the way back to something like the Ape Canyon incident where, you know, Fred Beck and and the miners were in this canyon up near Mount St. Helens and their cabin was besieged overnight by these apes, supposedly, you know, that threw rocks on the cabin. So there's got to be a certain level of intelligence. I don't know that these things can speak English. And if they exist, again, hate to predicate it with that, but there mm-hmm. you go. It, yeah. it adds a level of high strangeness to the story that this lady's telling this thing to bean her in the eyes with a rock, and it does. At the same time, maybe, like you said, maybe she was just gesturing and it picked up on that. I, I mean, we were at the zoo over the weekend, and it's always surprising to me to see the way some of these primates behave yeah. with people that are kind of like engaging with them. You know, like it's, it, it is as if understand exactly what you're doing or saying on the other side of that glass. Yeah. Well, yeah, they don't have language like we do. So they have to rely on gestures and uh, facial expressions and movement much more heavily than us humans that have the capacity for language. But also, I was going to mention, you know, I'm sure you've heard this as well. There are some theorists on Bigfoot that believe that there is a psychic or mind-reading capacity mm-hmm. with some people that have encountered it, like they got some kind of mental impression or psychic impression from these things and vice versa. Yeah, and I think we we touch on that very briefly in Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. Um, mm-hmm. We probably didn't go as far into it as 
we could have. There's one story in particular, an invasion on Chestnut Ridge that involved this farmer and two young boys encountering these two creatures, Bigfoot-like creatures in a field near Uniontown. And after this event, the one of the men had like all sorts of visions of like the end times and things like that, that he seemed to believe were sort of like being passed to him by the Bigfoots. Um, yeah. But you know, like one thing about that, I love that story. I love all these stories, especially about Bigfoot type creatures. It's probably why there's been so many Bigfoot movies in the small town monsters catalog, but it's not a predominant number of these reports. And this is something I just talked about with a friend the other day is like people tend to throw around these high strangeness Bigfoot cases as if it's like the norm and people are just afraid to talk about it or they don't want to talk about it because it's going to cast some sort of negative image of the subject in people's minds. But it's not necessarily that. I'm sure that's it to a degree, but it's that there's thousands of these reports and the actual number of them that involve stranger sort of the high strangeness details like portals and ufos and all that it's a tiny number it's probably like one in a hundred where someone adds in the detail that there was also like a ufo in the sky or something like that yeah that's interesting a couple of other things that freaked me out too from minerva specifically was you know provided that you believe the witness but they mentioned that they pointed the shotgun or something directly at it and it didn't flinch yeah. at all. Yeah. So that tells you if you're a dude in a suit and someone points a shotgun <laughs> yeah. at you, you're not, no one is that cool. You take off the, uh, the mask. Yeah. But. And then the other thing that really freaked me out that I hadn't heard in any other Bigfoot stories, of course, I'm not super well-versed in them, but I'd like to get more now after watching your, your three films. But the idea that this one had like two smaller creatures with it, almost like minions. Or the right. Uh, right. Or familials. You yeah. Know, familiars as a witch might have a cat, you know. Right, and you could, that's an interesting way of putting it, considering that one of the witnesses referred to it as the hairy witch. Uh, yeah. It's funny, too, because, like, the Catons 100% believe that these were black cats, that they were cougars, you know, like, or panthers, as Howie put it. Um, uh. They were black. He said they had tails. They were walking on all fours. But then we talked to the guy who referred to it as a, as the hairy witch. Yeah. You yeah. know, he said that they were smaller ones, that they were like juveniles. And so, you know, you can take it either way. Maybe the Catons misunderstood what they were seeing because it was the way they were moving, made them look like felines or something. But I don't think that's the case. They seem pretty aware of what a cat looks like, a large cat looks like. And that was pretty much what they were counting Seeing And I keep mentioning him for some reason, but Lauren Coleman did tell me that during the 70s, especially around 78, when the Minerva case was breaking, there were sightings from around the U.S. of Bigfoot-type creatures accompanied by cats. So mm-hmm. I don't know why that is, but there you go. <laughs> well, God, everyone loves pets. That's uh, bizarre. But, it, well, if you want to get way, way out there, then, and you're talking about skinwalkers and shapeshifters and Native American lore, where it is uh, something else, some kind of creature, a human, a beast that is morphed into something else. And if you're looking at some type of witchcraft, then that maybe makes sense that there is, you know, somebody who is uh, a medicine man, a shaman, a witch who has uh, morphed themselves and, and is a familiar, you know. So intellectually, to me, that's where that argument can, can go because, as we'll see here in a minute, these stories get much stranger and more supernatural. 
depending on the monster, depending on the area. But uh, that's what I notice is that there's kind of an arc between something that's, you know, this beast is described as hairy, uh, six to seven feet tall, four to 500 pounds, gray or brown hair or a mix of it, which I, again, that's another thing I heard a lot with these stories that it's a dark fur mixed with a gray fur or one was totally white. It's like there's always a, a modeling of colors and uh, there are some consistencies And then when you get with some of these other monsters, now it starts to sound more like a werewolf or dogman. It just gets weirder from there. You know, again, most people can accept like, okay, maybe there is an ape running around out there that's some kind of hybrid or a new species that we have not discovered. You can't have too much hybridization. You can't have, like with the Jersey Devil, it's a camel plus bat plus goat. That starts to get crazy. Right. Again, like I just feel like the number of cases, though, that get into the really weirder stuff is just a much smaller number. Mm-hmm. Even if these were cats common in Ohio, I, it's not unheard of, and ODNR will tell you they're not here, but they are. But it's not common. I guess it is or has been known that sometimes cats do follow larger predatory animals like bear. Um, yeah. And so you got to wonder if you want to come up with some sort of you know, natural sort of reason why that might be the case you symbiotic can, yeah, kind of relationship there, yeah. there might be something like that going on there there's a guy named mike mays who just did a book actually about phantom felines in the u.s and mike is actually a member of the north american wood ape conservancy but mike and i uh were <laughs> well talking. now we feel like we have to join yeah <laughs> go for it but mike was telling me mike was actually the one who told me about that that it wouldn't be unheard of for these things to be following some sort of larger predatory animal hmm. interesting You know, just across the three films that you did that are Bigfoot-oriented, the difference in behavior, too, like the Boggy Creek, because that thing was aggressive, which it seems like a lot of times you don't hear about, you hear about, like, rock throwing and tree knocking and yelling, but the Boggy Creek situation seemed pretty frightening. And some of that is the tone of our movie. Yeah. You know, like I think we were very much trying to sort of embrace the 1970s sort of horror aesthetic with that movie. To me, I actually, like, I feel like the Boggy Creek monster stories, for the most part, are fairly mundane, sort of like sightings of a creature walking away or crossing a road. The, The ones that you're referring to, I think, are probably the Ford incident, in which there was a creature that like walked up and stuck its hand. This girl was asleep in the house and she woke up and looked over and there was a hand reaching in the window at her. Yeah. Um, And beyond the drape, she could see sort of the red eyes of the creature peering in at her and she screamed and the family actually went outside, shot at it. There's definitely a couple cases that are a little more aggressive than what you typically get. You know, like, I don't know that I would say every case down there is like that, but there seems to be some sort of behavioral aspect of Southern Bigfoot eyewitness sightings that do occasionally involve that sort of like meaner, (laughs) a little more uh, swanky, you know, like attitude to them than what you get sort of in the Pacific Northwest where they're almost seen as this, almost like just another member of the sort of like animal kingdom in the PNW down in the swamps of Southern Arkansas. um, (laughs) You can occasionally run into a Bigfoot that wants to beat you with your own arms after it tears them off (laughs) your body. That's that's just Southern (laughs) hospitality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, coming from the the Northwest, you're right. Those are the stories I 
grew up with is that they're very timid. They'll check you out. I mean, they're scary. The dogs will go crazy and all that, but there is tree knocking, there's rock throwing, there's branch breaking, but they're really not out to interact with you. They're very elusive. And so if anybody claims that they've got footage, they're, you know, they're running away. They're trying to be not detectable. And so this is a little different. What I think Scott was saying is that they're very interactive and, and people have these encounters. And that's where I think a lot of this, where their aggressiveness, that's where their fear comes from, or just confrontational or not backing down and running away like mm-hmm. they're expected to. And then I think a lot of these elements that you see for the descriptors become the same. And one that I noticed is it's always the red eyes, mm-hmm. you know, th- that shooting laser, was it, that was the Minerva, I believe, was it? That the, was, that's Beast of Whitehall. Beast of Whitehall, where yeah. uh, you know, the three teenagers that said the, uh, it's, the eyes are like lasers. Then you talk to people and there's actinic conjunctivitis symptoms, like with Mothman. Mm-hmm. There's something about this through line of these freaky red eyes. And I can't believe that it's all eye shine because not all these people have had flashlights. We're getting eyes reflected back. So there's just these weird commonalities between uh, a lot of these monsters, it seems. Yeah, that is one thing that kind of unnerves me about the the Bigfoot phenomenon is it, is it does, the, the red eyes seem to align it with something a little more sinister, a little more supernatural than just a known animal. But again, I would wonder how many of the Bigfoot sightings actually have red eye shine involved. The Minerva monster, they always recounted seeing sort of orange eye shine. In the case of Boggy Creek monster, there was the report of like red eyes looking at her through a window. But it is weird that so many of the other creatures have these glowing red eyes, you know, like the werewolf dogman stories. Although very often the dogman stories have yellow eye shine. Right. We used red in our movie because I liked the way it looked. <laughs> <I liked the> way <laughs> it looked. A, cre- a little creative direction there. Yeah, yeah. A little creative direction. But uh, also there were red eye shine reports from the Beast of Bray Road. So it, it was like yeah. it was sort of like you could pick one or the other and we went red. We also went red because it was uh, a more affordable uh, <laughs> cheaper the color of reflective yeah. tape right <laughs> there you go it's a little yeah. peek behind the curtain there but um so yeah <laughs> right. so yeah it is weird i've always thought it was very odd that so many reports are of of red eye shine and then you have things like the mothman that are sort of known for the red eyes you well know? yeah but th- that, but that was my point seth is that i grew up you know i was uh, a young kid in the 70s who old enough to really be digging all these bigfoot kind of stories and you're right. That's totally unfamiliar to me with Bigfoot. I'd never really heard that with any of the stories coming out of Washington, Oregon, Idaho, or Montana in that whole region. And I had heard some. And, and you know, friends of my grandfather claimed that uh, they didn't get a real close look, but they saw something big, really heavy, really tall, running through the woods, scared the dogs. You know, that you'd hear stories like that from people you knew, you know, in second and third hand accounts, of course, but never anybody seeing something so confrontational that it, it was looking at you in the eye and it had this eye shine and there's that component. It was more the vibe, I guess, as I'm saying up there, at least in the 70s and 80s, was that it's just elusive. <laughs> It'll scare you, but don't worry, it's going to run away. It might steal your candy bars, but, you know, mm-hmm. and you might get some rocks thrown, but it's really not out to hurt you or run off with you, mm-hmm. unless you're Albert Ostman. But that's Canadian. That's, a, that's <laughs> yeah. a Canadian deal. I don't know what's going on there. but That's different. They kept apologizing, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. 
we're very sorry. <laughs> and here's one other thing, and I've said this on our show before, but with regard to the rock throwing, there was that episode of, I'm pretty sure it was Monster Quest, mm-hmm. where they went out to this cabin oh. where supposedly it's something that happened, and it, it was in Alaska, and the only way to get there was by seaplane, and you were dropped off, and they were going camping in this one particular area where somebody, you know, it was a shared hunting lodge and there were journal entries explaining the experiences of different hunters that have been there. So they went out to try and camp where this one hunter definitely saw something strange and they're back at the cabin. And I think it was like the last night and they were like, well, we didn't really see anything, you know, we did our best, whatever. And then the rocks started coming in from the woods behind the cabin, Mm -hmm. coming into the fire pit where they had the fire going. I remember them talking about one of the guys got so scared that he went inside the house and he was like, you know, and it was funny because it's like great producer, right? You know, we finally get contact and it's like freaking me out so bad. I I can't be involved in recording. (laughs) It's like, but they were in Alaska. There were no roads. There were no towns. There were no people. This was whatever was out there throwing rocks at them would have had to come in on the plane with them if it was human. Mm -hmm. So just crazy. That's how I felt about the rock throwing and and screaming that I heard in in the Watchtaws cuz to me the yeah. idea of it being a person it just didn't make any sense considering where we were. And you know like they've recounted rock throwing incidents in the Watchtaws. I mean there was an event a few years ago that they referred to as the rain of rocks that they have audio of where basically this cabin was just like pelted with rocks for hours. I mean, like rock yeah. after rock. I mean, they call it the rain of rocks because it sounded like rain hitting the the roof of this cabin they were in, and it was rocks. Wow. Yeah, I would be so freaked out about that. And that's the same thing, by the way, with that Monster Quest episode, because his cabin got trashed when nobody right, was there. Right. And he went back and fixed everything. And, you know, the refrigerator, like the door had been torn off. You know, it was like bear kind of stuff. Yeah. But he put nails on a board, right? Right, by the front door. Yeah. And then they were able to collect fur off of that. Which got lost. No, Yeah, no, I don't think it? it got lost, but I think the examination of the DNA was inconclusive or uh, something okay. to that effect. Yes. You know, but they I, couldn't figure out what it was. But it's usually anyway. how it ends. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> my, and that's my favorite the thing. Term. You're like us. You've explored multiple things now. It is remarkable how often stuff disappears or goes missing or you never get the results back. And mm-hmm. I mean, yes, in some cases it seems like a cover-up, but in other cases it just seems like sheer incompetence or negligence. That's how I feel about the Minerva case because they found that jawbone and I think there was some hair involved and they sent it to a local university and the local university immediately lost it. Yeah. That kind of thing happens all the time. I don't think it's a cover-up necessarily, but it's so bizarre. I remember when we were making Minerva Monster, we thought we had stumbled upon this huge government shadowy cover-up because Howie Caton was convinced that he could recall there being army jeeps prowling the woods behind his house and men on horseback the day after they initially called the police. And we were so excited about this story point because I'd never heard it. It seemed to indicate that there was government involvement in covering this up or investigating it. I asked the local sheriff who was involved in the investigation about it. And here it turned out that it was the Stark County police officers. Apparently they were very on a very strict budget at this point in the 1970s. And the police had actually bought a bunch of army Jeeps at surplus. So when he was recalling seeing these guys in army issued Jeeps, they were army Jeeps, but they were Stark County police dispatch officers that Mm. were actually investigating 
the area. And James Shannon was pretty upfront about the fact that he really did. I mean, he took this very seriously and, and they went out and investigated. The local police really investigated the story because they 100 percent believed what the family was telling them. You know, what's nice about that, though, is that it corroborates your witnesses testimony. There were army jeeps and horses, and you're like, okay. And then you start looking into it, and it's, yeah, they were there. It was something different, right. but they were, in fact, there. And it tells you, again, that he's being as truthful, at least about those details. You can confirm that. And he know? was a kid at the time. So, you know, like he's a teenager, but he's a kid at the time. So a lot of time has passed between now and then. So some of those little details, I mean, to him, that those probably were just army guys, you know, like the right. armies back in the woods. Right, yeah. right. Hey, did you hear about that massive ancient Native American settlement? It was found lying just under and around the town of Arkansas City in southeastern Kansas. Yeah, I actually read a few articles about that. It's changing the traditional thinking about the early settlement of the North American Midwest. But if you've been diving into the Great Courses Plus series, Ancient Civilizations of North America, you'd know that this lost city that was called Etzanoa is now considered to be the second largest ancient settlement in the country after Cahokia, which was once situated on the east side of modern-day St. Louis. Well, what a coincidence, because we happen to be currently in the lecture on the Mississippian city of Cahokia. And that's why I think the Great Courses Plus is always so relevant, because you can come across a current news story and then learn about the bigger picture, and we're big picture people. Yeah, I know we focus a lot on the history courses over there, but as we keep saying, they offer courses on everything. Yeah, true that. Well, tell us some interesting facts about just how massive and significant ancient Mississippian Cahokia was. Well, yeah, since I didn't get to talk about the clove culture last time. <laughs> so sorry. Well, Cahokia in its heyday around 1100 is thought to have had a population of about 10 to 15,000 people with another 20 to 30,000 living in satellite communities. North America wouldn't see another city that size until New York in the 1750s. The entire site once covered around 3,000 acres and the central area of Cahokia called the Grand Plaza covered 50 acres, which is about 35 football fields. Wow, I'm impressed. Well, I'm sure the ancient Mississippians would have been relieved to hear that, Forrest. <laughs> if you love learning about the big picture on everything that's going on with new discoveries like we do, this is the perfect course to get started with and the perfect time to dive into any of the fantastic lectures over at The Great Courses Plus with this special offer. A free trial with unlimited access to enjoy their entire library, but you need to use our special URL. We know you're going to love this, so go right now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to sign up for your free trial. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends for full access and a free trial. I'm Cynthia Wallace, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. We're not going to touch too much on Mothman just because we've, uh, it we've was our longest miniseries it. ever. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're sick it's of fantastic. Us talking about it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank, thank you. You. Yeah. you know, it's like you say about looking back at stuff. I, I look back on some, and I'm like, that could have been better organized. But anyway, <laughs> I wanted to talk about the invasion of Chestnut Ridge and Flatwoods before we take a look at your most current project. And uh, Chestnut Ridge was really fascinating. Like you said, it's a little bit of a different model from your other films. Mm -hmm. It's more of a flat. People have been getting on us about saying the word flat too much lately but uh i think they'll come to love it <laughs> yeah i have flaps just fascinating and of course kecksburg is right there in the center of it it was great to see uh stan gordon on there 
talking about that and just the fact that that region, and then that, I guess the last story you had about the light that disappeared into the portal, mm-hmm. that's well, just like... There's so many tie-ins with other stories we've done, which were major ones like Skinwalker Ranch. There's just... That's what's kind of weird to us. Yeah. Is that Scott and I will look at each other like ears perking up, like, you know that was hit upon when we did Skinwalker, right? Mm-hmm. That was hit upon when we did Mothman. This yeah, these was two-dimensional doorways open yeah. up and things pass through them. Yeah, and so then they... Invasion on Chestnut yes. Ridge is very much like, almost like an anthology movie. I don't know if I would call it an anthology because it's all tied together so specifically, you know, each story kind of leads into the next. But it's about that stretch of mountain range and it starts with the Kexburg UFO and then it ends with a tiny orb in the woods going into a portal into another dimension or something. And they're all stops in between everything from Thunderbird sightings to dogman encounters to weird Bigfoots with mohawks and, and <laughs> no right. teeth. Yeah. And, you know, like Bigfoots holding glowing orbs in the woods. It's, yeah, it's, that was the craziest thing. I've never heard that story before. Uh, any story of a Bigfoot yeah. carrying a glowing white light. I don't know why. I don't. I, I'm really proud of that movie, and I don't know why that one stands out to me as being like a success for us. Because usually I look back on them and I'm like, oh my God, like I could have done so much better. And that's one of the ones where I always, I was just thinking about it today because we're prepping our our next movie right now. And Mm -hmm. it's going to have some similarities to that film. So I was almost looking at that as like a blueprint. And even I was was just out in LA two, three weeks ago because we're kind of like, soft developing a TV show with Adam Wingard and Adam directed the Blair Witch remake a few years ago. And right now he's about to direct the the massive King Kong versus Godzilla movie for legendary and Warner brothers. And Mm -hmm. Adam was on Amazon prime last November, just cruising through and stumbled upon invasion on chestnut Ridge and watched it and immediately looked me up and found my phone number somehow and actually called me. What I'm trying to get at is like that dumb little movie that cost us like $8,000 is the reason we might manage to get something off the ground that's a little bigger. And it also seems to be the one that people really respond to. I think stylistically, it's a little different from everything else we've done tonally. It's, it might be a little different. It's very... um like in search of we were very yeah yeah tuned into in search of even the way we opened it with stonehenge i mean it's the most cliched like (laughs) we start with like the nazca lines and and yeah oh my god i didn't think about that now that you're pointing it out i can totally see it yeah Yeah. it's opened like an episode of in search of should and yeah so the movie just works i don't know why it works so well but it it does work and uh but it's all these bizarre stories kind of tied together by this one stretch of mountain range where really weird crap happens and we didn't get to i mean we don't even scratch the surface of the sighting reports the strange events that have occurred on that ridge i mean you could do an entire series about invasion you know like the chestnut ridge events usually what we found is that there are uh swaths of land shall we say that seem to have high strangeness Along a stretch. And of course, the best geometrical symbol now is the triangle. So we just did the Welsh triangle. We just did a, a, an episode on that. And of course, there is the Archer Triangle in Chicago. There's the Sasquatch Triangle here in Ohio. Is there? Yeah, it was actually in an episode of Monster Quest, uh, the Ohio Grassman episode. They mentioned it briefly, but it was sort of that phrase was coined by 
Don Keating, who's the local Ohio Bigfoot guru back in the like 80s and 90s. Yeah, they're all over. It's like <laughs> the, the Bridgewater Triangle. So, you know, I don't know if it's just because it's easier to draw lines between three different points where things seem to happen, but definitely with Chestnut Ridge, if you follow that line through Pennsylvania, uh, I guess southwestern Pennsylvania, it's weird, but that's also something that, you know, as we'll get talking about the Beast of Bray Road, Linda... Godfrey says that was kind of an eye-opener for us is that if you take these incidents and you like lay some acetate over it of other sightings, a lot of it matches up. And it could be Native American, ancient Native American settlements or trails or burial mounds. She's got this map she's put together of like how she explained this to us. It's not in the film because I could not come up with a clear, simple way of explaining to the audience what she was sort of like describing, because <laughs> uh-huh. it, it is a little convoluted, but like basically Bray Road was at the center of this wheel. Like she yeah. had made this map of like sighting reports and it was like Bray Road was the hub of the entire thing, which I thought was really interesting. I feel like she ex- tried to explain something like that to us. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And in her, right. And that was yeah. her map overlay thing that she kind of discovered is that these things seem to overlap in weird ways. And again, it's like the game cam footage where suddenly now there's a black orb in the sky mm-hmm. or a uh, an orange ball of light. You know, something weird that's also happening with something else weird that's seemingly unrelated, but geographically they coincide. And so that was interesting to us. But it's also, you know, you could say that the same thing about a hotspot like Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, you know, near Ballard, Utah, is sure. that if you spoke out from that or, or a hub with uh, spokes going out, there's still strange stuff happening in the in the perimeter. Mm-hmm. But it's localized and very heavily and most active in kind of a geographic area. And it goes in waves. But it's like what was interesting is that, you know, oftentimes people will ask us, it's like, well, that was in the 70s, right? That never happens. They didn't have the Internet. It was a lot of hearsay and this and that, and it never happened again. It's like, well, no, I guess also with Minerva that these things continue to go on. Or at least uh, like the Whitehall monster of New York or the A-Bear incident, it's still going on to this day. Yeah. And the interesting thing about tying it back to Whitehall is that Whitehall is kind of got its own little like invasion on Chestnut Ridge situation going on. Whitehall... We didn't get into it in our film, but there is an episode of the the little like six episode miniseries I did on YouTube called Case Files, which they're real short. I think the one I did about Whitehall is maybe seven or eight minutes, but it goes into like all the UFO sightings that have taken place in that area. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of like really bizarre activity that's been taking place around Whitehall for decades. In fact, like while we were there interviewing Brian Gosselin, he told us about a sighting he had had of Champ because Lake Champlain is right there. Whitehall sits on the banks of Lake Champlain. So like Brian also claims he's seen Champ, and then two local police officers claim they saw a giant prehistoric pterodactyl-type bird sitting in a tree in the woods right off of Rare Road. In fact, on the opposite side of the field from where the kids saw the creature. For a long time, there's been a lot of very unusual activity taking place in that area. And there's a word for it, and I was going to say it, it's either Beddington or Bennington Triangle. And that oh, that yeah. was kind of coined by Paul Bartholomew. That's an, part of an area where a lot of like really weird stuff happens. I feel like it's Bennington. I feel like I've heard of that. That's Vermont, Bennington, Vermont. No, 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 no. The, the Bennington Triangle. Oh, Benning- okay. I've heard that Bennington, if it's Bennington, Vermont, then that's what it is. It's the Bennington Triangle. Huh. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Flatwoods monster. That, as a cryptid, that just is like so different 
from every other really story because it's like, and I still don't know, is this thing mechanical or organic or some combination? And, and of why the is two? it wearing a skirt? That's the <laughs> that's the big question. This was a movie too where we weren't going to make it. We were constantly getting asked about making a Flatwoods Monster movie, and I always said no, mostly because. There's very few living witnesses. In fact, I was only aware of Fred when we went into making this movie. And I got to a point where I was like, I really want to tell the Flatwoods monster story, but I want to do it sort of through this lens of like how it's morphed into a myth or a legend that has very little to do with the reality of the case. And it was going to be a 15 to 20 minute YouTube short, probably part of my case files miniseries that we would put up on YouTube for free. So that was originally the plan. We started filming it. We actually shot like three of the interviews last July. And the day we were up there shooting three of the interviews, Andrew Smith, who's in the movie, the Braxton County Visitors Bureau head or whatever his official position is, actually told me that Fred May was in town. Uh, And it just so happened that Andrew lived right next door to Fred May. Fred May was one of the seven boys that walked up the hill that night back in 1952 and encountered this strange, bizarre creature on the side of the hill. So he tells me Fred May is at his house. And if I want, we can drive over there and he'll introduce me. So he drove me over. He introduced me. And Fred and I sat on Fred's porch for about three hours and just kind of talked. And at the end of the three hours, I said, hey, I'd love to interview you. I understand you, you've you said you're done doing interviews about the subject. You know, I'd really like to have you tell your story. And Fred said, I'll think about it. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to happen. And I left. And over the next like four months, Fred and I would actually talk on the phone probably at least once a week, sometimes twice. And he was going through some really bad health issues at the time and still is today. But he was really battling some cancer that was messing him up pretty badly at the time. But we finally got to a point where he said he would do the interview. And not only did he say he would do the interview, but he wanted to do it at his brother Ed's house. And Ed, of course, was also one of the seven boys that walked up the hill that night. So I was told early on, don't even ask Ed. Fred said, we're going to do the interview at his house, but Ed's not going to do it. I said, okay, that's fine. And I knew Ed was very excited about meeting my father. My dad actually ran a historical bookstore, Civil War bookstore when I was a kid. And Ed is like a Civil War buff. So Ed was really excited about meeting my dad. So I told my dad, look, I'm going to bring you with me to shoot this interview. You got to try to talk Ed into doing this interview (laughs) for the movie. So like my dad and I drove all the way down to White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, to where Ed lives. And we shot, we got down there. And uh, almost immediately, Ed said he would do an interview. So we went ahead. We walked out into the field behind their house. We shot the interview in maybe like 15 minutes. And then I shot Fred's interview, and it just completely changed the whole scope of the movie. It went from being like a little 15-minute YouTube short that was going to be much more focused on the town to this. It's not a feature-length movie. I think it's 45 minutes. It's a short film. But we were able to get Ed and Fred May to talk about it. It's Fred's last interview, and it's Ed's only interview he's ever given on the subject, period. In fact, Fred actually told me it was the only time he's ever talked or heard Ed talk about the incident, period. So it's not common for Ed to even speak about it. So that was a big deal for us. The movie is really kind of about how a uh, real event can morph into something completely different over time and the impact such an event can have on 
someone like Ed and Fred May. And the monster that's at the heart of the movie is kind of irrelevant to me. I believe that Ed and Fred 100% saw what they said they saw. I don't know what that was. What they seem to be describing seeing is some sort of mechanical object. They never referred to it as a creature. That's sort of what it became after the fact through some shady reporting and shady investigative work done by guys like Gray Barker. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. we've rented his work before. Yeah. His kooky books, yeah. as he called them. I don't know what it was. I do believe, though, that they saw exactly what they said they saw. I, this is as sure as I've ever been coming off of a, a film of, of what the witnesses said, you know, being exactly what they saw. Okay. That's interesting. Which one is Fred and which one is Ed? Who had the baseball cap on? That is Ed. He refused to take that baseball cap off. And I I was about to (laughs) force the issue. Yeah. Wow. We enjoy so much talking to witnesses. That must have been exhilarating just sitting on the porch for three hours with an eyewitness to something like that. That must have been amazing. I've said this before, and this is something probably you guys would only get very few other people. It was one of the only times I've ever been in the presence of a witness or anyone sort of involved in the paranormal world where I felt like I was with a celebrity. Like meeting Fred was another level for me for some reason. And just getting to kind of like hear him talk and, and getting to know him was really kind of like the highlight, probably the highlight of this year for me, actually, because he he actually came to our premiere in Flatwoods when we did the premiere, which sold out. They actually, the fire chief had to come out and start turning people away because they were concerned about a fire hazard when we premiered it in Flatwoods. And I thought that's that's one of those cases where I don't know what's going to happen. You know, like we were showing this little 45 minute short film at their local theater that seats like 320 people. And I expected there to be like maybe 100 people and it completely packed out and it's because there's an interest still in that community about what happened and getting to see those local people talk about what had actually happened. That's really cool, man. Well, I really enjoyed it. We enjoyed all your films. And, you know, the thing that we need to talk about now is the one that no one's seen. And that's the Bray Road Beast, which you said is coming out October 5th. Yeah, October 5th. What drove you to uh, try to do something with the Bray Road Beast after all these other films that you've done? Uh, Linda. And I, I actually think it's kind of obvious if you watch the movie. There's, I don't think we've ever done a movie that was so driven by one person. The entire movie, if you yeah. really like step back and look at it, the entire story, the entire narrative of the movie is driven by her. Mm-hmm. And I had shied away from this subject for so long because that subject has been something that I always kind of avoided because to me the idea of upright walking canids existing in America and unseen you know like it's almost like a bigfoot type thing but instead it's an upright walking dog just seems so absurd to me and then finally I think Mark Matsky who co-wrote the movie and and was also the narrator on Invasion on Chestnut Ridge and used to do the old Sasswat podcast with me he convinced me to read the Beast of Bray Road book and I read it and I absolutely fell in love with her style of writing mm-hmm. almost immediately. She yeah. was, especially on that book, her writing on that book, she was still very much a skeptic, I think, when she wrote it. I think she was still very skeptical. Yeah. And now she's much more of a believer. And I loved her objective approach to that particular book. And when I read it, I thought that we have to do this. Like there has to be a movie and it's not going to be like our other movies where it kind of just focuses on typically our movies are about one sort of regional 
aspect of a subject like the paranormal. So you get, instead of making a movie about Bigfoot, we make a movie about Minerva monster or beast of Whitehall. And we don't really go into like the history of the Bigfoot subject, you know? Right. So with this movie, I wanted to do a movie that wasn't just about a regional monster, but that would use the regional monster to also sort of springboard us into a look at the broader topic as a whole. So it probably isn't quite as broad as I originally envisioned it, but we used Linda's work on the Beast of Bray Road and and the sightings that were taking place on Bray Road to sort of take a look at the dogman phenomena as a whole, from the sightings that took place in the UK and the the werewolf mythology and all that kind of stuff. And it was also an excuse for us to incorporate some hammer horror style. Uh, (laughs) you know, like bookends and the lighting on the interviews. And that's getting into like some really nerdy stuff that listeners probably don't care about, but like the, the, the fire glow. Yeah. Like there's, yeah. All that kind of stuff was sort of like inspired by hammer horror. And I'm a huge hammer horror fan, which is another thing my mom introduced me to as a kid. Nice. Yeah. So like we wanted to incorporate that into the movie and it just gave us, it was just what I wanted to do. At that point, you know, we were going to, we were kind of coming off of invasion, which invasion is a little lighter to me. It's more of a mystery than it is horror. And Flatwoods is more of a legend than it is horror. And I wanted to get back into something that was truly sort of terrifying. And to me, this subject was it. This was the story that would kind of like help bring us back around to that horror audience that we've sort of, uh, I guess we've been embraced by in the last couple of years. And then once we started filming the, inter- the the movie and then we had that interview with John Fredrickson where it starts going down the road of like Satanism and satanic rituals and the forest and everything. I mean, it really kind of changed the entire tone of the movie and pushed it in a much darker direction than we were orig- originally sort of intending. So I'm really glad we made the movie. It was all inspired by Linda though. Like if Linda had said no to being involved last September when I asked her about it, we wouldn't have made the movie. Yeah, no, she's the coal shack in this whole, you know, at the center of this, the investigator who's kind of driving this thing and who's collected a lot of stories and done a very good job at it. And like you said, uh, we think an excellent job at her stance, her point of view, her objectiveness, but also mixed with uh, open-mindedness and really drilling down on this and and being the focal point. But you've done an excellent job as well, I think, with the film. I think you've achieved everything you wanted to set out uh, with this film and that it does encompass so much more of the history and the lore going back to the Middle Ages almost and uh, and even to, as Linda points out, even to biblical times Mm -hmm. in an utterance. And again, that's the stuff that really gets me. Again, that's part of every fictional movie too when it says, uh, well, this just happened to me. Or you could take the Mothman prophecies we always reference a lot. And you go to the professor, I call it, it's asking the expert, where it's like, what's going on with me? What's happening with all these sightings? And it says, this has just happened to me in the last few weeks. And then the expert says, no, 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 this has been going on since the dawn of time. And pulls out all these dusty old books and shows you, no, this happened in the Middle Ages. It happened in the 19th century, the 18th century, the 16th century. I just want to remind well, everyone that Rich Haddam copped to the fact that he made that moment up. I know. regard to the a, Mothman. No, that's what I'm saying. That's I mean, people trope. are still saying that the yeah. Mothman was at Chernobyl, but Rich made well, in, that up. Mm-hmm. No, in that, in that respect. <laughs> Which I love, yeah. by the way. Yeah, but what we found is that even people you had on, like David Floyd, the English professor talking about fiction and, and cultural history, was saying that there's often a kernel, and some of your other paranormal investigators on there, you know, there's a kernel of truth in a lot of this folklore that we hear about 
What is sparking that? Is it just people's really good uh, storytelling imagination and then it just spirals out of hand to what we have now today? Or was there something strange that was first sighted? And as Linda says in the film, something different in the way they acted, being much more vicious and just murderous and uh, more ravenous beast-like, where now it seems there's a more human element to these things and you can see a pattern that's changing. So yeah, I think your film, uh, going back to my point, is that your film has really taken a step back, as we say, the 10,000-foot view where you see the history of it, but also the recent creepiness of it. And I think, you know, if this one scares anybody, there is a human element to it, which is often more scary than the monster, in that you have weird people doing strange, horrible things in the woods. Mm -hmm. In the film, like, I believe you're you're referencing sort of the occult rituals. Is that what? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the, I mean, the stuff that John actually investigated and came across in terms of like what the animal mutilations involved were pretty messed up. And I've, you know, like oh, I, yeah, I'm yeah. familiar with how that stuff tends to go. And it was still, it came to a point where I was like, you know, I probably don't need to include the scene where this guy talks about cutting this dog's, you know, finding this dog's genitals. Like, I mean, it got really, it, yeah. it got real dark. Yeah. And it, the part of that, that probably might not come across is that they really do believe like John really believes that people in that town were involved. Like there were highly placed people in the town that were involved in this stuff and might've been involved in covering it up after the fact, because the boneyard they found was bulldozed. <laughs> Here's the other thing about John, and for our listeners, this is another one of the primary interview subjects in the Bray Road Beast film. He's an animal control officer, right? And yeah, for Walworth uh, County, uh, he was the humane officer. Right. You just have this footage of him sitting in his, you know, this quiet farmhouse or something, and it's almost like he kind of glazes over a little bit. He's very mild-mannered, so it's just very like, yeah, uh, yeah. The things I've seen, you know, like <laughs> just like this guy, you can tell there's something going on there for him. He's it's just like, like he's, wow. he's like he stepped out of Fargo, the movie Fargo. Yeah. Like yeah. he's very measured in what he's saying, but he's also kind of like matter of fact, you know, like he just you know, like uh, some local people were cutting up dogs and cats in the woods. And, you know, like some of the local law enforcement seemed to cover it up and bulldoze the property. But that's life. Like, that's how we kind yeah. of like, <laughs> that's kind of how he talks about it. Yeah. It's, no, it's a very measured approach. And and Scott and I, as we were watching it, I made this comment to him. It's like, when he gives you that uh, thousand yard stare, it's because I was saying, think about it. If anytime something weird involving any kind of animals, roadkill to something live that needs to be captured or something chopped up in the woods... He's the guy that goes and investigates it and cleans it up or tries to get to the bottom of that. So when you talk about all these cases, you know, when he says, yeah, the things I've seen, he's seen it all. He's the guy who's had to go out there in these weird ritualistic circles where people have left all these horrible body parts and, and carcasses in really awful states of uh, death. And he's the one who's had to kind of put that together. And then when he says, well, I've gotten some anonymous calls where I got one anonymous call where, you know, this woman was trying to tell me how deep this goes. And it involves lawyers and teachers and police officers. And then you find that this one boneyard or this array of bones and flesh out in the woods that he has to go investigate gets bulldozed before it can be properly investigated. You, then you, why? I know it's embarrassing for the town maybe, but 
doesn't seem like uh, good police work. Right. Is there something going on? And that's the part that's scary to me. Also, why is he not nervous about going on the record about all that? That part of it, I think he never was, because if you go back to the newspaper articles that were running at the time, it's actually kind of comical. He was engaged in almost like a war of words through those newspaper articles with the local police Uh like he's he's kind of going back and forth with them over through the media over you know they're calling him like an overreactive you know like he's overreacting and this is is like satanic panic he's just freaking out over nothing and he's going back at them like he knows what an occult ritual looks like and and what you know just a boneyard a a farmer's boneyard looks like and this is an occult ritual and like they're going back and forth that it's really interesting like he never was apparently all that concerned about what he was saying publicly about it. Right. And when you take all this in the context of the Bray Road Beast and the idea that there may be some kind of relationship going on there between these rituals and this creature that has either been conjured or they're paying homage to or whatever, it just, it gets weirder and weirder. And the thing that Linda said in your film, and this is was something that she had said on our show, and I forgot about how much it freaked me out when she said it. But she, you know, aside from these, the fact that you have these large sort of human canines walking on their hind legs, she was like, and the knees are backwards, or they, they're backwards. The back legs are backwards, mm-hmm. like a dog. And I just remember, I was like, oh, yeah, I, that freaked me out when she was on our show. And then it freaked me out again. But just these stories and then the scratches on the cars and the, uh, it's just Yeah, there's there's, phys- there's physical traces with this one. Something, though, I didn't want to gloss over because, I, you know, people always say when we mention uh, anything, you know, that has to do with uh, Satanism or whatever, people like to go to and find comfort in these kind of stock, not debunking answers, but just kind of dismissals, I guess, in a way. It's like, well, that was all satanic panic. Mm-hmm. There was really nothing going on. Again, being uh, interested in all kinds of weird stuff and growing up in, in this to this stuff happening in the late 90s, you hear all these stories, but you can kind of dismiss it as like, well, that's people overreacting and, you know, they're afraid of rock music and, uh, you know, records playing backwards and all that kind of stuff. And it's just the satanic panic, quote unquote. But really, there were people and are people And according to John, people from all over the world internationally coming to Elkhorn to do weird things, satanic, you know, rituals and cult practices out in the woods where they're involving not just candles and robes, but they're chopping up animals and you don't know what else. But that is really happening. No, it doesn't matter to me if they're actually conjuring Lucifer. They're doing really kind of disturbing things out in the woods. And it, that does seem to happen. And then when you talk to John, he says, well, I had a senior FBI person come and talk with me and uh, enlighten me that uh, there are three counties that seem to get the most activity. And Walworth County is one of the top three. And that there does seem to be something going on that at least government police agencies are keeping track of. So to me, it's like, well, you know, again, if you believe that's true, that's not that far out there for me to kind of uh, believe that they are tracking weird stuff happening and keeping note of it. That is above the local police level because maybe they can't be trusted to not bulldoze a crime scene Mm -hmm. of sorts, even if it's uh, animal cruelty. And then one thing I wanted to end on with John Fredrickson is that when he's interviewing Lori Andrezi, who was one of the first witnesses, she's in his office trying to figure out like what kind of animal this might be. And a bunch of books fly off his shelf, right? As he opens a a certain book, I guess, or just at a certain moment when they're talking, 
And he's pretty matter of fact about that. But I think that clues him in that, uh, all right, maybe there is some kind of supernatural. Well, yeah. And then he just calmly looks at your camera and he goes, and uh, so we stopped that. Well, that's when I stopped looking. <laughs> yeah, at it's that. like the, it's the one sort of like moment in the movie where I was like, you know what? Like, this is pretty funny. I mean, the chapter literally, and he says the words, uh, and well, that was the end of that conversation. And then the chapter yeah. just ends and like goes immediately <laughs> yeah. next. And I yeah. was really like torn as an editor. I was like, I don't know if I should do that because like it almost changes the mood to like something comical. But I was like, well, the next chapter just dives right into like satanic practices. So it's probably okay yeah. to like break the mood for a minute. The interesting thing about that, so he tells the story about Lori and Drizzy. Uh Lori was the first technically the first witness of the modern era to see the beast of Bray road. And she saw it on Bray road eating some roadkill on the side of the road. Lori came to visit John at his office. She tells him the story and asks him what he thinks it could be. And for probably because he was investigating all this satanic stuff at the time, he says, you know, it could be a natural animal that people haven't identified. And then for whatever reason, he starts talking about how it could be something satanic. And as he's talking about how it could be something cult-based or whatever, these books fly off the shelf behind him. Weirdly enough, during this same interview, that he was giving to us that's on camera. He was in the latter half of the interview was when he started kind of like opening up about the satanic stuff and, and the occult rituals. And as he was telling us that one of the first stories about the boneyard being found, a black bird, like a, a raven flew into the window directly behind him, like full on. Ooh like fast as it could, like just slams into this window behind him and left this one lone feather just dangling on the window. And I guess it flew off, but it was, it was the weirdest timing. Cause he had just said something about like Satanism and all of a sudden it was just like, bang, like it sounded like someone <laughs> shot something through the window. Like, and uh, we have it on camera. It's pretty funny or interesting, I guess to watch. Uh, yeah, is that? We'd love to see that. Is that in the bonus footage? Uh, no, not yet. We'll do something with it. I'm going to do something with it. Okay, that's pretty freaky. Yeah. It's a weird coincidence, but it could also be a, a raven is a big bird to yeah. fly into a window. Yeah, exactly. And they're also usually... super smart. Yeah. So, what town is that in? We did most of these interviews, uh, with the exception of Lee. And David mm -hmm. Floyd were actually done in the house, the rental house we were staying at in Delavan. Okay, I just wanted to put it on my list of places that I'm never going, so <laughs> I'm just... Uh, <laughs> you're not going to be able to go anywhere. Have you noticed how good the internet's working out here now? Yeah, man, I've got full bars, and the 24 browser tabs I've got all open seem to be loading super fast. So what'd you do out here? I mean, it was terrible before. It's our new sponsor, Eero. Oh, Eero, huh? Yeah, E-E-R-O. Their tagline is, never think about Wi-Fi again. And I gotta say, it was the easiest tech setup I've ever experienced. My existing Wi-Fi system, which already had a signal booster about 25 feet away from us right now inside my house, just did not work for us out here in the studio. So we've been running a 75-foot Ethernet cable through the yard for years. And even with that, without buying more gear, only one of us could be connected at any <laughs> given time. You're one of the most tech-savvy guys I know, but the word janky did come to mind. Uh, yeah, janky. It, it was janky. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we got our sample product from Eero yesterday, and I seriously had it set up in less than five minutes. My old system was a single router model, and they just don't work in our increasingly high bandwidth world. It's simple physics. Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. That's why you need a distributed system, which is what offices have had for years. 
the new second-generation Eero and Eero Beacon allow customers to build Wi-Fi systems that are more perfectly tailored to their home than ever before, with more speed and range in the same high-quality, elegant design that people have come to expect. Well, what about optimizing the router settings? It's honestly a piece of cake. You just download the Eero app on your iOS or Android devices, and it walks you through each step of the process. It's quick, easy, and painless. You can even see how many devices are connected at any given point, as well as the internet speed that you're getting from your service provider. Or you can easily create and share a guest network. And they have great customer support too. You can call and get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds, and they can walk you through everything if you need help. I saw Blake from Monster Talk out front in an unmarked van trying to hack into our network. So how's the security? He's going to be out there a while because Eero is protected with state-of-the-art WPA2 encryption. And because it controls the hardware and the software for your entire network, it ensures that you're always secure. Unlike traditional routers, Eero updates automatically so that you not only have the latest features, but the latest security at all times. I gotta say, I've never been so glad to leave behind a Wi-Fi router brand I've been using for over a decade and switch to Eero. Eero is clearly the best solution, and you can see for yourself with free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada by visiting Eero.com and selecting overnight shipping at checkout and then entering the promo code LEGENDS to get that shipping free. So for free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com and enter the promo code LEGENDS at checkout. Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again. Hi, I'm Carl from Cape Town, South Africa. Yes, we have the interwebs here too. And you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Fulbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. You know, and here's the other thing about Linda too, and, and for our listeners again, especially people that haven't listened to our back catalog, Linda Godfrey is an author who features prominently in Seth's film. She also was on our show in an episode called Monsters Among Us, which is the name of a, another book that she wrote a while back. But that's who we, when we keep saying Linda, I just wanted to say the other thing that I was reminded about, about her from your film is just that she doesn't get rattled. Mm. Like she's telling the craziest story, you know, and she'll be like, well, yeah. And then an eyeball landed on my arm, but it's so <laughs> the point like, is, and there's nothing, yeah. she just is like, and it's like, but you know, these, that's, these are the kinds of things that I like to keep track of. And <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's cool under fire. Yeah. I appreciate that. But that's, I think from having researched it so much in a search for answers and going along this journey is that you become familiar with it. It still keeps you going and interested. And she doesn't really tip her hand either. It was interesting to me when you said a few minutes ago, Seth, that she started out more skeptical and she's more of a believer now that you can't really tell that when she's talking about this stuff. Yeah, it depends. Like we interviewed her on my old podcast and I was blown away at how frankly she was discussing like migratory patterns of Bigfoots. But yeah, in one of the interesting things about, I mean, the, her first line in our movie is about how her... The line is, uh, The Beast of Bray Road wasn't even my first book. My first book was about true crime, poison murders <laughs> taking yes. place in yes. Worth County. Yeah. And I just felt like that was the absolute perfect way to introduce Linda Godfrey, who's this yeah. very sort of, <laughs> you know, petite lady. And then she yes. is, she is uh, covering very disturbing, dark, strange subject matter and seems to gravitate yeah. toward it. 
Yeah, well, she's got that reporter's demeanor that, uh, and again, like Holshack, you're on a quest and you're going to go find it, even though it's uh, it could be perilous and scary. Well, the dramatic version of this really writes itself because if you've, you've got her, you know, being kind of the quiet, she's just, like you said, this journalist, this steady, you know, and the more you talk to her, then you realize she's got maps with overlays on them and, you know, the classic sort of David Fincher red threads going everywhere. And then, and then you've got this animal control guy who is reminding me of... Uh, McConaughey and True Detective, and like <laughs> it's, <laughs> just kind of, yeah. um, it's just unreal. Whatever's going on out there, it seems uh, so much bigger than just the Bray Road Beast. Yeah, yeah but you know, Linda also is going to say uh, delivers one of the most chilling lines in the whole movie here when she's talking about. Uh, I, I think it's Joe Shackleman. His father was a caretaker at the Saint Coletta Institute in 1936, where which, JFK's uh, sister was. Um, oh, by the way, oh wow, really? It's not, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not it's mentioned a, in the movie, but she was she was one of the patients, the inmates, or whatever you would call them. Right. Well, yeah, it was it was kind of a uh, convalescing home or a facility, hospital like facility to take care of people with special needs back in the day and a Catholic run organization. I think this is one of my favorite stories. I took good notes on this passage here, this section. To me, this ties into a lot of more ancient kind of uh, mythical kind of things and lore and uh, perhaps some real stuff that we've kind of covered on on our past uh, episodes. Joe Shackleman's father, the, the caretaker back in 1936, goes out on one of his rounds with a large flashlight to check on things. And there are these old uh, ancient Native American burial mounds that they've kind of left there on the site. And he sees this weird kind of creature perched on top of one, seemingly digging something up. And he shines its light on it and gives a description that uh, it was a uh, a beast that was half animal or part animal, looking kind of that fitting the descriptions that we've been talking about all evening. And this is uh, early 1900s, right? Uh, 19, well, this is 1936 is when uh, this, this supposedly happened. It's not some guy with an actual torch out no. on the moors. It's it's pretty recent, but he's shining a light on it, and uh, and this thing is digging in the top of the mound. It seems like it's I guess as he described it, searching for something under the ground. So that's interesting. And again, it's like not of the rule of threes, but he comes back the next, like, the thing runs off. It sees him, it gets scared or spooked. It runs away. And of course, uh, Joe's father's kind of freaked out too, but he goes back the next night. Well, that's his job again with the flashlight. And he sees the beast there again on the same mound digging down. And Joe's father reportedly said that this thing spoke some kind of proto-human type language to him that it was kind of guttural and primitive. I just thought, like, where did you get proto-human language? It's just such a weird description that this thing was trying to speak to him. And perhaps what he picked out, the word that kind of stuck out to him, was Gadara. And then what I love is that Linda comes back in on camera and says, in the New Testament, it is talked about as a place where a man was filled with demons. And then you wonder, like, well, then what is this thing digging up? It's not food like the rest of the stories where it's eating roadkill or something, or deer, it's searching for something. It's not typical. Well, no, and there are ancient Native American burial mounds, and the whole freaking school is surrounded by cemeteries. There's two cemeteries right there, and one of them's just full of children. The entire story in that setting is kind of the perfect place for this terrifying encounter with what seems to be the sort of the first dogman encounter from that area. Again, it makes you question the nature of the entire thing like the entire subject the entire 
dogman phenomena as a whole. I mean, it fits perfectly in with Skinwalker, Native American, shape-shifting, all of that stuff. But then on top of that, it also plays into all the satanic stuff we were talking about. And then you get to this whole thing, you know, what is the age of this creature? Is it procreating? If it's not, is it 100 years old? What, you know, it's just... Yeah, no, you just tripped on something I just thought of in trying to search for a possible answer or connection. It's Skinwalker Ranch. And the Navajo story of the Skinwalker is that it is a shaman or medicine man who has basically used his powers to turn to the dark side. And the first step in doing that and becoming this shape-shifting monster this uh, half-man beast, wolf beast, or, or it could be other animals, bears or uh, sometimes uh, eagles or large birds, is that you must defile something holy. And it could be a grave. It could be a body. You could kill somebody. You have to commit some kind of horrible taboo against the tribe. And that's the first step of turning yourself into this dark demonic beast that gives you power. And it's like, is that what this thing was doing on top of the burial mound? Of course, total speculation now. Yeah. It's just a wild flight of fancy by myself. But that no, it just kind of reminded me of that. It's like, if you're going to believe this, if you're going to give some credence to the fact that it is some kind of weird, non-natural creature, and perhaps there is some Native American... Uh, through line to this, is it something like that? Or is it just something that people are, you know, misidentifying that's really weird, but a real beast? So, you know, with every movie that with Seth's line here is that you're left with that question. Are people really seeing something? Okay, so you believe they are seeing something, or at least a few people are. And then what are they seeing? Is it natural or is it something not natural of this world? And that's where this movie Bray Road Beast, I think, really tackles that question. It's the first one that really opens that up and presents it to the viewer. Yeah, and it, you know, like further tying it to Skinwalker is the Lee's Ranch chapter, which I think is called Here to Stay, which is called that because it seems like all that activity around Lee's Ranch is just constantly going on. And Lee, Lee is a local who had a sighting of some red eyes in his field one night, came to find out that locals see the Beast of Bray Road in the area surrounding his farm. His farm is on a road called Bowers Road, which is sort of perpendicular to Bray Road. And so one night he found a, a dead animal and he took it out back behind his field and left it for God knows why. That's one thing I'm a little unclear of is why you would just start taking roadkill and throwing <laughs> it out in the woods. Yeah. But um, he threw it out there and <laughs> it came yeah. to find this body had been like, zipped from its neck to its abdomen. That's how Linda puts it. It's like something had cut it open and then removed some of the vital organs and left it lying there. And that was just kind of the beginning for Lee. And uh, over the subsequent, like, probably six or seven years since he first bought the ranch, it's just been an escalation of the activity that's gone on there. And now we're to the point where he's got photos of all sorts of strange aerial phenomena in addition to strange glowing eyes and multiple, you know, huge dog tracks that he's found on the property. Now that you've finished this project, how has it affected you? Where where have you come down on the Bray Road beach? I This is one where I don't really have a definitive answer for you. I think the tie-in to the sort of occult ritual stuff that was going on is really interesting. It's going to depend on how much stock you put in demonic practices or, you know, demons and that sort of thing. Um, you know, like I'm a Christian, so like my beliefs tend to run in that direction. So when you start talking about satanic practices happening in the woods and then all of a sudden there's some sort of 
weird entity hanging around, you know, the same general area where that stuff's going on. I think that's a viable option. But one thing about that, though, Mark Maskey, who co-wrote the movie with me, thinks that the whole idea that this could be some sort of like entity is almost too neat and concise of an answer. And I tend to listen to Mark like when it comes to stuff like this, he's got more of an insight into it than I do, I think. And um, I understand what he's saying, like just being able to tie a bow around it and be like, eh, it's probably just an entity that was like conjured by a bunch of Satanists in the woods. <laughs> and and that yeah. doesn't tend to be how this stuff runs. It, uh, there doesn't seem to be simple answers to it. It's like I always come back to Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. Every time you think you've got it figured out, it changes into something else. I don't know what I believe about this particular one. I do think that a lot of the sightings of like large quadrupeds are are probably just like koi wolves. And there are a large number of those sort of, you know, hybrid dog wolf sightings that seem to be taking place in that area. And I think a lot of that is probably explainable with mutated animals or hybrid animals of some sort, not mutated, not like it was a hawk dog or something like that. <laughs> now that's crazy yeah. talk. Here's a callback. You were talking about Lee's ranch and earlier, Scott, and uh, you, you were talking about uh, how evidence gets lost. That's exactly what happened there where he's been collecting. We had Linda on and she was talking about all these strange mist clouds that were yeah, well, that was up. from him yeah yeah that was him, that's yeah. exactly the the tie-in that was from him in the game mm-hmm. cams that he would set up try and putting out roadkill and trying to find out what was doing it and all i could really see is that every time uh, you know the roadkill vanished there was a cloudy white mm-hmm. mist that appeared on camera and he's got all this other evidence and castings and all that and he took it to the university there this local and then another one and it's like nah this is uh you don't have anything here it's just kind of dismissed. Right. Yeah, they, they told lost. him there was someone walking around his field on stilts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, right. To make that kind of deep impression, he's like, there ain't nobody walking around on my farm wearing stilts. I would have seen that. Once again, met with just kind of disinterest and dismissal, either out of disinterest or pointedly. But yeah, no, we, we totally dug the film. We've seen the arc of, uh, again, your progression, and they keep getting better and better, and they're all entertaining. You have to just choose the monster you're interested in. And I think start there, but you're choose all Choose your monster. Choose, yeah, exactly. <laughs> choose your adventure. Uh, no, it, yeah. it was great, man. Great job. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I wasn't going to bother to ask this because I don't think you're going to answer, but um, what's the next project? Oh, geez. We... Is it a secret? I mean, I can tell you On the Trail of Bigfoot is like the follow-up to On the Trail of Champ, and it's a miniseries that I'm making. I'm actually going to be out in Washington and Oregon next week up in the Olympics and kind of around Mount St. Helens and stuff like that, doing some filming for that. So that's one of the things that's coming out in 2019. And then in 2019, we're putting out uh, a movie called Terror in the Skies, and that'll come out next spring, and that is focused on... Um, Thunderbird sightings around Illinois. Oh, it's fun. kind of like a three part, three act structure. The first act will focus on the Piazza bird, and the second act will be about the um, Lawndale uh, Thunderbird abduction and, and some of the other like flaps that took place around the state of Illinois. And then the final chapter will focus on these Mothman and Chicago sightings that have been going on. So that should be out next spring. We actually start filming in like five weeks on that. 
And then our next movie, which is coming out next, probably around the same time Bray Road is this year, so probably early next October, uh, we are making, finally, the Momo the Missouri Monster, which is something I've been dying to do for quite a while. And that'll be heavily involve uh, Lyle Blackburn. So... Oh, fine. Oh, and then beyond cool. that, yeah. um, 2020, we're doing The Bell Witch and uh, a movie called All The right. Mothman Legacy. Oh, cool. Nice. That's awesome. Well, this sounds like a lot of exciting stuff. That's that's really cool. It's certainly right up our alley and a lot of our listeners. So we're going to drive them to, uh, not literally, but we'll, we'll drive <laughs> the traffic. We're going to rent a huge bus. Um, yeah. Come and to drive them to wherever yeah, just it is. Don't, just like don't the old days with your house, friends. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, like the old days when you get, gathered your friends around sure. your living room. Well, it's really cool. You seem to be on a great track. Your work is evolving so quickly. This latest film is truly, I think, one of the greatest things you produced. And, and uh, yeah. even though I enjoyed your very first one, I think uh, it's going to be great to watch your, your new projects that are coming out. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we'll see you on the road again. For too long, so yeah. you know, too. And if you come to LA, I know we weren't here last time. Oh, we that's right, he was. Yeah, we uh, but uh, you know, definitely don't come to LA without looking. Definitely, us up. I will. I will do that, and we'll we'll go out and and paint the town red, talking about cryptids or whatever weird <laughs> oh, thing we'll, we get into. Yeah. <laughs> we can go to the Bigfoot Bar. We go to Bigfoot Bar. Yeah, uh, but we can also probably find you a real monster. Oh, there we yeah. go. That's going to wrap up tonight's show and our latest three-week run. Special thanks to director Seth Breedlove for joining us. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a new episode. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Cynthia Wallace. Hey there. I'm Sandra. This is Carl from Cape Town, South Africa. And I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Yeah. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Thanks, guys. Wait, what? Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.